Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley & Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley & Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Today, I'm speaking with Caleb Burhe. Caleb is a labor and employment associate in Foley's Los Angeles office. In this conversation, Caleb reflects on growing up in Washington, D.C., and later moving to Silver Spring, Maryland. And specifically, Caleb shares a bit about the culture shock he felt adjusting from a neighborhood that was predominantly Black to one that was predominantly white. Caleb also shares his parents' stories and discusses why it was that they each decided to immigrate from Eritrea to the U.S. And he also talks a bit about a famous aunt he has who is a well-known singer in Eritrea. Caleb then shares about his decision to attend the University of Maryland College Park and to focus on becoming a therapist. And he also talks about the couple of years he spent as a dedicated mental health therapist at Johns Hopkins before leaving his role as a therapist, getting a job as a bartender so that he could focus on studying for the LSAT and subsequently go to Washington University for law school. This conversation is really fun. There's a number of side stories that Caleb shares, one of which includes his comedy troupe in law school, and a submission that he made to Above the Law. But also Caleb talks quite a bit about his labor and employment practice and specifically a bit about how he focuses on California labor and employment law. One of my favorite parts of this discussion is the connecting thread between Caleb's experience as a therapist and the work he now does for clients. It's really fascinating to hear about and really adds to my theory that nothing that is done before law school or before you come a lo- become a lawyer, is lost, as all of the skill sets you've gained in life will help you in your legal practice. I hope you really enjoy this conversation. Caleb, welcome to the podcast. As usual, we're going to just jump right in, and I'm going to ask you to give your professional introduction. Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Caleb Berhe. I'm an associate in Foley and Lardner's Los Angeles office. I practice uh, exclusively practice labor and employment law. That ranges from class and collective actions PAGA, as we know in California, single plaintiff cases that go from discrimination to contract disputes and and so on and so forth. So anything under labor and employment, I practice generally speaking. We are going to dig more into your practice, of course, but first we're going to talk about you. So let's start at the beginning. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Sure. So I grew up in Washington, D.C. I grew up in Northeast D.C. I moved to my parents' moved to uh, Maryland and Silver Spring specifically when I was in fifth grade. So, you know, the first 10 or 11 years of my life were in D.C. And I think that really made an impact on, you know, how I perceived the world and, you know, my experiences because of that was such a unique uh, childhood. Okay. And then you stayed in Maryland until you left. So it was D.C. and then Maryland. Is that that's probably where you were as growing up? Yeah. So after we moved from D.C. to Maryland, which is the suburban D.C., basically, I I stayed there pretty much through, I would say, well, I actually went to college at the University of Maryland. So, you know, if you count that, uh, I was in Maryland all the way through the end of college and then 
a few years after because I, I lived in Washington, D.C. after I graduated college and uh, before I left, eventually, finally left the Mid-Atlantic to go to law school in uh, the Midwest. All right. So we'll get to some of the details about college and law school, but I want to know a little bit about Caleb before you went to college. So if you had to describe yourself, what kind of kid were you? What was life like growing up? Actually, maybe start in D.C. What was life like growing up in D.C.? So this was, I don't want to date myself here. It's okay. It's okay. (laughs) This was uh, primarily the late 80s and early 90s, which uh, unfortunately DC was going through a really bad time uh, with the crack epidemic. So, you know, I grew up in this neighborhood of DC that most people would have considered a pretty rough neighborhood. I didn't know that at the time because usually when you're that young, things, you know, everything's innocent and you don't realize the conditions that you're living in. But my parents were very protective and they did a good job of teaching us to focus on school. So I didn't spend a whole lot of time, you know, out and about with the the random youngsters in our neighborhood. I mostly just hung out with my brothers and my next door neighbors and my parents kept a close eye on us. So, uh, you know, it's it was I know it was probably hard to raise kids in that neighborhood because I remember gunshots were pretty prevalent all the time. I just remember hearing them all the time. I remember in particular, someone was killed not far from my house for his tennis shoes. So it, that's kind of, you know, where I was growing up. So is that Southeast? I know. I mean, that's kind of the stereotype of DC that Southeast is, is it like, what part of DC were you in? This was the Northeast quadrant. Northeast. That was going to be my other guess. Northeast. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I just remember going to the library a lot, <laughs> which just sounds kind of, you know, kind of uh, nerdy. But there was an, uh, a library branch uh, about a five minute walk from our house. And uh, I spent a lot of time there. So, you know, my parents did a good job of keeping me out of trouble. And you mentioned, so do you have siblings? I do. Yeah, I have two brothers, younger brothers. All right. I always like to paint the picture for our listeners to get a sense of Caleb is. And so it sounds like you moved from there on your around 10 or 11 to more of more of a suburban, I guess. Sort of, I don't know. I'm just guessing as to. Yeah. yeah. It was completely different. It was a, just a, a huge transition for me. It was jarring. It was shocking. Everything you can. I mean, it really was a huge point in my life. I, I feel like my parents, who were both immigrated to the United States in the early 80s, late 70s, didn't quite understand the cultural uh, shock that I would go through and my brothers would go through when we moved from, you know, a neighborhood that was 99% black to a neighborhood that was 99% white. Mm-hmm. I'm just nodding my head profusely. A- Caleb can see me, but of course listeners can't. Yeah. Where'd your parents immigrate from? Uh, Eritrea. Okay. That was going to be my guess if I guessed, which is wholly inappropriate, by the way. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that with us. But no, I think that makes a lot of sense that that would be. So I was... I was, am, I was the black kid who grew up in all white schools the entire time. Okay. I never had the experience of attending a school that was predominantly black, but I can very much imagine what, and also at such a, you know, it's not like you were five, you're 10 or 11 and you're, you're totally having to probably relearn a, a lot of things in terms of, I don't know, like interpersonal, whatever within school. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I had to relearn how to speak. You know, I think uh, there, I remember there was this one time when I was on the playground in my new school in um, Maryland and like the kids were teasing me because of how I said the word again. And like, I think I had an accent, maybe a Southern act, maybe some kind of a, you know, I don't know, but they, they spotted it and they kind of teased me about it. 
And uh, I realized that at that, that point that, you know, I was in a different world and I had to kind of adjust. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and we're going to talk about college and choosing law school, but if you don't mind, I would love just to ask a little bit more about your parents because I imagine that they did play a role in your path. And I also think it's great to get people to to share a, a little bit. So I'm not sure if you're able to share just a few words about with them, them immigrating or kind of how they established themselves once they you know, came to the U.S. Yeah, sure. So my dad came here first, I believe, and he uh, attended Howard University. He came here when he was about 18. So he started college right at that age when you start college. So he came here for school and uh, I'm pretty sure that's how he was able to get his visa. And uh, yeah, so he met my mom at some point in college who was uh, at school at the University of the District of Columbia, UDC. So they met uh, in DC. My mom kind of had a crazy story about how she got here. Uh, my dad was a little bit, I think he came from a little bit more of a wealthier family. So his uh, story was pretty simple. You know, he just got on a plane and flew out here. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, my mom, however, I mean, it's a pretty remarkable story. I always tell her she needs to write a book someday because uh, she took this journey that started in Eritrea, which is uh, which was formerly a part of Ethiopia at the time. And pretty much as a, you know, she started the journey. I mean, this took years and she started the journey when she was a teenager by herself going through Ethiopia, Sudan and Egypt uh, until ultimately um, getting to Italy. And then from Italy, she traveled to the States. And so she lived in various cities along the way. I think the most time she ever spent in any one city was in Cairo. She would do like, I guess like there was some kind of connection where my grandmother knew people along the way that would, you know, give her a place to stay and feed her and like give her, you know, get her work or jobs and stuff. So I remember she told me like she worked at a Fiat dealership in Cairo for a little while, helping them this, you know, this dealership owner with like the administrative stuff. I mean, she was just a teenager. She didn't really know a whole lot of, she didn't have a lot of working skills. So she picked up a lot of that stuff on the way. And then by the time she got here, she was like 18 and ready to start college. So my aunt is who helped get her here from Italy. My aunt had married an uh, uh, American in the military and was able to bring her in that way. And my aunt was actually like a famous singer. So really random, but uh, she's not, she's no longer with us, but she was like a, a equivalent to like, I would say a mega star in the US, you know, uh, but in Eritrea and Ethiopia, wow. so much so that I can name, I mean, I could go to any Ethiopian or Eritrean. And, and they know. Let me, I would say, let me talk to your parents, right? Because she's older and they wouldn't know her name. And her their parents would absolutely know her name, have all her music and CDs and you know, and all that stuff. So it's really cool kind of growing up with this famous aunt. But I, that, yeah. <laughs> it's weird because she was famous, but she wasn't famous because Americans had no idea who she was. <laughs> right. It's that that kind of double double life almost. Yeah. In one country, you're not, but in, one, in another, you are. I'm so glad I asked because that, that those are all really interesting paths. And then my little bit of two cents, because I always talk about me a little bit in these shows. And I, I shared this when I had Sunite on and Sunite's Ethiopian. But so I grew up in the Midwest. I go to American University for college. I had not ex- ever really encountered the Eritrean or Ethiopian community growing up in the Midwest. And upon arriving in DC, people often think I was Ethiopian. <laughs> you do look you do look it, yeah. <laughs> right. I can confirm and, that. The listeners, they can't see you, but I can confirm it. 
Yes. And I'd have to spend some time convincing. <laughs> They're like, well, where are your parents from? And I'm like, South Carolina. Where are they from? And I was like, you know, they can, where are your people from? And I was like, through the slave trade? Like, I don't know. I can't. But anyway, right. so it, but it's just interesting kind of like learning a little bit about other cu- cultures just by moving to other part of the country. But okay, we will move forward. Talk to me about, I don't know, your high school age. It's time to go to college. Was it clear to you that you were going to go to Maryland or what was that decision making process like? High school was, you know, this was in Maryland. Uh, you know, it was, I went to a pretty diverse high school, actually. Uh, I think it was my middle school uh, that was really very white, but in my neighborhood, my growing up, that was really, I think it, my schools were generally pretty diverse, which was nice. So I, you know, I would, could, you know, I was going from a DC schools where, you know, uh, there's a reputation for DC public schools not being very good. And, you know, I had to, my parents were able to get around that because they, put me in the Montessori program. So I kind of, I, you know, there'd be Montessori programs within the DC schools and then they would shut that program down for for funding reasons. And then another one would pop up at another school. So then they would send me to that school uh, in Northeast. And then eventually I was going to uh, school in Northwest. So, uh, and the, all these schools are super diverse. Uh, I mean, where, you know, the uh, black national anthem was like the Song. song we sung like twice a week lift so, every voice and sing twice yeah. a week got it <laughs> right right so you know the transition was obviously very different in uh in suburban maryland so uh going to a very diverse high school was refreshing because i kind of got a little bit more of that that i was getting growing up um in dc i kind of i really wanted to, it's funny i really wanted to go to the university of michigan but based solely on sports <laughs> not that i was going to play a sport but that i enjoyed watching Michigan sports. I mean, the Fab Five were, you know, really popular. I mean, just it was just fun to watch Michigan sports. And so I was a Michigan fan, even though I lived in Maryland, you know, and obviously Maryland was its own good school for sports, but I just, I didn't care. I wanted to go to Michigan. So I applied to the Mich- University of Michigan and I, uh, I didn't get in. I got waitlisted and I, I got into the University of Maryland, which was starting to get harder to get into. I think at one point, it was a pretty easy school to get into for if you were in state. But uh, I think a lot of people from New York and New Jersey were sending their kids down there. And so applications became more competitive. And I actually had a lot of friends in high school who didn't get in. So when I found out I got in and I got a scholarship for almost a full ride, it was like, I went to my application from the University of Michigan and, and I went to Maryland and, you know, it was, uh, it was great. I, I loved going to the University of Maryland. I'm glad I went. What was your major? What did you think you were going to do after? Gra- yeah, what were you focused on while there? Yeah, I was a psych major. I always had an interest in people and, and studying how the human mind works. I took a lot of classes in that area. And I also took a lot of classes in African-American studies, even though I didn't, I didn't minor a certificate in that. Just It was just an interest of mine. So you know, I didn't take a whole lot of like hard sciences, even though I was in, I took like AP biology, AP chemistry, all that stuff in high school. I just, as soon as I did, wasn't required to do it anymore, I just dropped it. So, Did you think psychology was going to be what you did when you graduated? What were you hoping? And I, it's so funny asking, because I think all of us, we look back at like 18, 19, 20 years old and we're like, eh, what, you know, what did I know? But I always just find it so interesting to find out what the mindset was at that time. Right. Yeah, so I did actually have an idea of what I wanted to do, and I, 
a lot of people didn't in college and now it's fine, but I, I really wanted to be a psych therapist. I wanted to have my own practice, you know, have that couch, that leather couch where I have my, you know, my patients or my clients come in and tell me all their problems and I get paid. <laughs> so that was the, uh, the dream at the time. I'm seeing a through line to this with the labor and employment, by the way. I see connections. I see parallels. We'll connect the dots later. A little foreshadowing going on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I just, uh, that was my my goal. And I, in order to get there, I had to go to grad school for it and, and get my clinical psychology degree. So that was my, you know, goal for, for years, actually. I mean, while I was in college and after, I was, you know, taking part um, in studies, like helping with my... Um, my professor, my psych professor, uh, after hours with her projects and, and trying to get, you know, all the experience I can. I took the GRE and yeah, I mean, I just, I, I did okay. I, I mean, I didn't do terribly, but I still knew that I needed to do better. So I had to take the GRE again. And while I was studying for the, taking the GRE, I was also working and um, this is after college. Sorry, I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Yeah, no problem. But I, because I noticed when I pull you up on LinkedIn, you know, you have some time off between college and law school. So definitely fill in that that gap for us. Right. So yeah, after I graduated college, I got a job working at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, which was a really great experience for me. I Johns Hopkins is obviously a very prestigious institution and a really great hospital. I worked in the Bayview campus, which is on the east side of Baltimore. And it's a little bit smaller than the west side, which is the main campus. I worked on a, in a department called the Center for Addiction and Pregnancy. It was a department within the psych department that specifically was tailored to women who were pregnant or postpartum with uh, dual diagnosis psychological, psychological disorders, as well as uh, addiction. So this was a really, really just very specific population that was going through very hard times. And it was very challenging as a result. And what was your role at what, when you worked there? What were you doing? I was a therapist. I was a therapist, a trainee, if you will, because in the state of Maryland, you you have to have, you know, your LCPC or LSW to, to actually be your own therapist, you know, standalone therapist. But they do allow for people with bachelor's, bachelor degrees and, and, and you know, psychology to um, work in similar capacity, obviously limited. I'm not doing the same thing as a lot of people who, who have those licenses are doing, but I'm doing it under the supervision of someone with that license. So, And are you actually, so as a, a therapist, and I get it, therapist trainee, but you're engaging with the patients as a, a ther- therapist would? Uh, how? Yeah, I mean, they were understaffed. I mean, it was this was like a place with a lot of uh, turnover because the population was very, I mean, it was very difficult I mean, obviously, it's difficult to work with this population, but also they, their lives were just, you know, it was very hard to see them coming in and out because uh, it's just very hard to solve someone all of someone's problems when they have so many uh, issues going on. So we saw a lot of like, you know, people coming back. It, it was very draining emotionally to work there. So, uh, you know, they were they would take as much help as they could get. So they threw me in there and had me leading group therapy sessions fresh out of college. Wow. So, you know, that was interesting. And I'm sorry. I'm just going to pause on this for one second. But I'm I'm imagining you, like you said, fresh out of college, you get this job. That's amazing. It's at Johns Hopkins. It's a difficult population, but it's really doing what you wanted to do, essentially. And then they're like, hi, Caleb. Welcome to this role. 
tomorrow or Tuesday or next week or whatever, go ahead and join the group therapy session with such and such. We need you to lead them through the following. They're just like, go do this. Yeah. They had me coming in and watching the LCP season and and, uh, and, the, and the social workers leading these group sessions had me observing. And then after doing that for like a couple of days, they're like, okay, we're going to just let you do this all from now on. Like this wow. is your thing. So <laughs> it's like, okay, which was good. I mean, like they allowed me a lot of autonomy. I got to, um, and I learned a lot, uh, I just learned a lot about life from some of the patients. I mean, just hearing their stories. I mean, they had just been through so much and I really valued the, some of the, you know, relationships that I had there because um, it, it, they made a lasting impact on me. And of course, my next question is, okay, so then what happens? Mm. How do you, how I, it's so funny as I talk to people because with bated breath, I'm like, okay, how do you get to be a lawyer? And I know what happens. I know how these stories end, but I still find myself being like, okay, what next? Then what? Yeah, no, I, I, I get it. The process is kind of wild for me. It's, you know, at that point in my, in my life, I really was just all about psychology and wanting to get my like, clinical psychology degree. And I, like I said, I, I had applied, right, taken the GRE and I got a decent score, but I really wanted to get into some of the better schools and I needed to increase my score. And it took a lot of work because uh, it just was, you know, the GRE is a little bit more of a general exam as opposed to the LSAT, which is much more targeted to a specific skill set. So while I was working at Hopkins, I was studying and uh, also part time, like, you know, really just part time, maybe once a week, going back to my university and working with my former psych professor on her ADHD uh, children's study. So was helping with coding and like, you know, a lot of the, you know, grunt work that a PhD student would be doing, which was really helpful because it kind of prepared me for what I would be doing soon in grad school. Uh, and she was also gonna serve as a, a letter of recommendation for me and everything. So, you know, it was all towards that goal. And I loved, I mean, I, I had a passion for it, but there was always this kind of thought in the back of my head about, the practice of law, being a lawyer, I, you know, I, I think you may have touched on this with your, uh, on your podcast with Senite, but, you know, coming from immigrant parents, that, like there's an expectation that you will take on a career with a very kind of a sure path to success and secure income, stable income. So doctor, lawyer, engineer was kind of, you know, the short list I, I will credit my parents because I think they were a lot more progressive, if you will, than a lot of immigrant parents because they did let me pursue my dream in psychology and they let me be a psych major without bothering me about it. You know, they're very, I mean, they let me, they, they really wanted me to have the true American experience uh, growing up in the States. So I just, I, I kind of, they would, and, you know, growing up over time, they would drop little hints like, oh, you, you should be a lawyer when you grow up. You're always coming up with excuses and you're always arguing. And so, uh, you know, that kind of funny. Well, Shauna Bell in her episode, she at one point described herself as growing up in a stereotypical immigrant household. And I think later in the podcast, she said, so my parents really wanted me to be something they did not have to explain what I did. Right. So <laughs> that doctor, lawyer, yeah. engineer, and that's about it. Where you just were like, oh, they're doctor, oh, they're lawyer. But so that's interesting because at this point I saw no seeds being planted for lawyer. And you said, you know, I knew I wanted to go on to get my degree in clinical psychology, but there was this seed or this interest in legal. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It was, like I said, it was just 
things, comments that they made along the way of my life, like, you know, just saying how I, you know, I'm going to be a lawyer someday because I, I, I always, I'm always arguing, just teasing me and stuff like that. My parents used to always say things like that. And uh, yeah, so it was in the back of my head. I mean, it was just a thought that I thought, you know, had that maybe I can pursue that, you know, that maybe that would be uh, something I could do, something I'm going to be good at. And this is actually really, really funny. So this is totally random, but one day I was walking in, this is when I was on the campus at the University of Maryland, helping my uh, former psych professor with one of her um, studies. And I was walking on campus. I saw a sign, a flyer for free practice LSAT test on campus. So I was like, you know, at th- this time I was studying for the GRE. I absolutely hated it. You know, it wasn't geared towards what I, my skill set. There's math on the there's GRE. Math, there's lots of math. And like I said, I, I took a lot of like advanced math classes and science classes in high school, but I dropped that as soon as I could. I just didn't have an interest in it. And so, you know, yeah, I, I saw the flyers like, why not? Let me just see what see what this is about. I'm never I had never seen an LSAT question in my life. Like I just I just knew that it was exam for law school and it was a practice test and it was free and they're administering it on campus. Why uh, not? Yeah, let's go do this. Yeah. So exactly. It was just a very random and really coincidence where I just saw this flyer on the ground. And so I, you know, I showed up for that practice test. Most of the people in there were seniors at Maryland and uh, they did, there was no requirement to be, you know, admit, you know, enrolled in the school. So yeah, I just sat down and I took it. It was just like a day after I saw the flyer and it was just a completely random thing. And uh, I got the results and I did really well. And I was like, oh, this is, this might be something I need to pursue. Sorry, I found my standardized graduate school test. This is my test. The GR is yeah. not my test. The LSAT's my test. Right. Exactly. That's exactly how it happened. And I was, and so that was, I think, the, that was the biggest push I had. And then I, I realized maybe I need to look into that. This, this you know, see if this is something that I could maybe do. Go to go to law school. Like, what about that? So, you know, researching law schools and what, it, you know, what I had to do to, to, to get in and also talking to a lot of people. Like, this was a decision I thought about for, you know, a good amount of time. I didn't just start applying. It wasn't as uh, off the cuff as the decision to take the practice. Also. Let's just say that. I had my uncle who is an engineer and uh, has a lot of, like, lawyer contacts in D.C., he put me in touch with some of his, one of his very good friends, the judge, an administrative law judge in DC. And so he put me in touch with him and, and other people, like other lawyers and stuff. And I've talked to many people who were in the practice of law and a lot of people were, were telling me, I need to consider this seriously because it would be a great thing. Even if I don't want to practice, it'd be great to have a legal degree. And even if I want to go into psychology, having a legal degree to set up my own business is really helpful, you know? So so that's really interesting and not something I would have ever considered or drawn a connection to the ability. So sorry, keep going. But. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I got a lot of positive feedback about this idea. And so, you know, that just, that seed just grew. And uh, at some, so at some point I decided I'm going to start studying seriously for the LSAT and, and do it full time. So I left Hopkins. It was really, I mean, it was really a hard decision to make because I loved working there. I loved the people I worked with and the, the patients. And but you know, I just knew that that was something that wasn't going to be long term for me. So then, at that point, I so I I was, I was living with my mother at the time. Uh, my parents had just divorced, and so I was able to live rent free. And I left, you know, my uh, like I said, I left Hopkins. I left that job, and worked as a bartender. <laughs> To uh, to save money, 
or to make money really, <laughs> uh, while I was studying for the LSAT. It gave me the ability to study like long days. I would go back to Maryland campus and, you know, just like crank out these long days of studying and then go at night to work as a bartender at a, a Caribbean nightclub uh, in a <laughs> on East West Highway. So these stories are the best. So we've had a number of people, I don't know if you would have caught them on the show, who've worked in like bartending or like the service industry. And I think this is also where other legal skills are cultivated. So I don't know if you have any things you, I mean, you also, for you, you'd already been working with people in such an intense way to begin with, Yeah. but you saw me smile when you said it. I was like, okay, this is going to get interesting because there's helpful things here too. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. <laughs> I was, uh, yeah, so I, I knew about this place because there was a period of time after I graduated and before I, did, I moved back in with my mom to say, you know, because I was leaving Hopkins where I lived in D.C. And so, like, I would go out to nightclubs and stuff in D.C. And and like, I, you know, I knew about this place and this place actually I, I didn't go there that, that much because it really had a reputation for attracting, you know, a CD crowd. And and so, you know, I, it's just funny that I ended up working there because it's a place that, you know, a lot of people, if you grew up in D.C. Yeah. What's it called? Can you say what it's what, what it's called? You don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I just said a lot of things about it. I don't... It's okay. Don't. Don't. You're right. You know, you are right. Don't say what it's called. But <laughs> yeah. For those from the D.C. area, they maybe already know what you're talking about. So keep yeah, going. Just East West Highway. It's on East Got West it. Highway. Got it. So, or I think it's closed now. I'm not sure. But, okay. uh, well, and also just to put this in time a little bit, and this is for me just like looking at your LinkedIn, but it looks like you had about three or four years between college and then starting law school. And a couple of those years were with John Johns Hopkins, and it sounds like the rest were bartending, studying for the LSAT, preparing to to go to law school. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Okay. Yes. And I'm gonna push you, and I'm gonna push you forward because the worst part is when I forget to get to people's practice. But what was that application process like then? How did you decide where to apply or where to go? I had a friend from the University of Maryland uh, from college who was at WashU for law school. Uh, he had gone straight through, and so. I actually had a our mutual friend recommended that I reach out to him because I, I didn't even realize he was in law school. And uh, she was, coincidentally, she ended up becoming an HR professional. So it's funny how like I, she's kind of like circling back later on in my career. But uh, she's the one who put me in touch with him. I spoke with him. He was like, come out to, you know, come out to St. Louis. I'll show you around. I'll show you around the campus. Um, it's a really great school. I love it here. So uh, that was one school I put on my radar. I also wasn't sure if I wanted to stay in DC. So I applied to uh, GW and I got in at GW. I didn't apply to any, any schools in the West Coast. And to this day, I have no idea why. Because like, I knew that- yeah, I still don't understand why you live in California, but we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had California dreams, even from the beginning. I just don't know why I didn't bother to apply. I think it's because they were really expensive if you were out of state, because there are a lot of state schools, but I, I don't know why I didn't. But it was either going to be um, DC uh, or uh, St. Louis. I applied to a couple other schools, like I, Tulane. I also got into Tulane, and so I considered that. But then, you know, ultimately, uh, admitted students day when I went to admitted students day for for, for WashU, I stayed with my friend from college, and I just was in love with it. That, that was it. That was it. Yeah. People were really nice. Professors were all really nice, like just really down to earth. Like it's very intimidating to go into a, a law school and, and talk to professors, you know, what over a glass of wine when you're like, you know, yeah, just that just wasn't a world I was used to. So they made me feel very comfortable. And that was a big 
uh, draw for me compared to the other schools I'd visited up until that point. So, yeah, so that's why I chose WashU. And also the scholarship helped too. So. That is also a bonus. But so you, you you pack up, you move out of the, the D.C., Maryland area, you go to WashU. And now, you know, fast forward, and I'm not going too fast, but, you know, you're a, you're a labor and employment lawyer. So when you started at WashU, did you know what you wanted to do? How did you figure that out? Yeah. So while I was at WashU, I had a professor uh, for CivPro, and I absolutely loved her. She, today, she, to this very day, she's my favorite professor I've ever had. She was a former labor and employment attorney. She was actually plaintiff side in uh, San Francisco for a long time. And uh, the casebook she used for her course was probably not coincidentally a casebook that was full of labor and employment cases that illustrated CIPRO principles. So, you know, you kind of you're, you're reading the case to, to kind of understand a CIPRO rule like subject matter jurisdiction or what have you. But then you're also reading the case and hearing the fact pattern. And you're like. I'm just thinking, wow, this is really fascinating. This is interesting. This is, you know, not what I expected a legal legal case to sound like. So, yeah, that was kind of, I think, the first taste I had of it. I'll admit I've had I've had too many labor and employment lawyers in the podcast. It's my bias. I'm working on it. I'm, yeah. I'm trying not to keep coming back to Eleni, but I do. But I had um, when Phil Phillips was on the show, who's our office managing partner of the Detroit office, uh, you know, longtime senior labor and employment lawyer in the firm. He joined private practice after being, oh my gosh, was he like a state's attorney? I, I can't forgot, but it was, it was government work. He's like prosecuting criminals. And I asked him, so why labor and employment? And he said, it's the only subject matter that could keep my interest <laughs> after <laughs> what I had been doing before. And, you know, not to bash other subject matter areas, because there's so many, but that is where, okay. people, we're the people, <laughs> right, where people are the most centered. So that's fascinating. She did it that way. Whereas when I look back at civil procedure, I barely understood civil procedure because I don't actually think I had it contextualized very well. And it was like taught to me in some weird order that corresponded with legal writing. Like we started at like summary judgment and I I was like, I don't know how we got here. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. It's a, I mean, so she gave you context that way. That's a wonderful way to teach it. To her credit. I mean, she was, a, she was just an incredible teacher. She just had a skill that I've never seen before. I mean, she made CIPRO one of my favorite subjects in law school. That's fantastic. And I zoomed past this a little bit, but what was that like then adjusting to law school, if you can remember? It's a decade ago, right, at this point. So. <laughs> right. That was interesting because it was a private school and it was my first experience at a private school. I mean, growing up, I was in D.C. public schools that weren't great. And then, you know, public schools in Montgomery County, which were, you know, a significant step up. But then a public school for university, for undergrad, it was my first time in a private school. And I was just blown away at like, well, the how nice certain things were, like food and, you know, accommodations. Some of the privilege I would see in some of the people, like my colleagues that I wasn't used to seeing. It was kind of a culture shock in, in a way, too. So that on top of, you know, just the general difficulties with 1L year. But the thing is, though, uh, I will say to, to Wash Youth Credit, they do a really good job of attracting a, you know, a, a fairly diverse uh, group of students, and and regardless of that, everyone is really nice and just so, you know, I got along with people really quickly and built very strong relationships that are still strong today. And you know, we, we always used to joke about, you know, whether it was in our small sections or our larger sections that like, that you know, all the stereotypes about law school that we heard before we got there were just so far from the truth uh, at WashU. So I really appreciate you sharing that though. The, the, because it, and you can have both, you can 
be an institution you really love for all kinds of reasons, but still have things that you're adjusting to. And that's, the, I think, one of the powerful things about having lawyers reflect, reflect on their career is as law students listen to this and as we get to learn about others, you kind of nod your head and you're like, oh, yeah, I had that exact same feeling. Maybe not the exact same way, but it's just great to, to hear someone someone say it. But it sounds like, you know, you, of course, do adjust. You have to figure out law school. And also for you, you'd been out of school for the past four years, although sort of still in school if you were working towards like helping professors and doing yeah. all this like PhD sort of work. Yeah. And I don't know if there's any more commentary about law school before I move on to the, you know, graduation, you know, starting your practice, but I'll pause to see if there is. It was important to me in law school that I didn't have, I had a, a balance between my work and my, you know, personal life. So I joined a comedy troupe at uh, WashU, and uh, that was my escape. I've always been a big fan of comedy. Is it improv? Like, what kind of comedy was it? It's more like a sketch comedy. A sketch comedy, okay. And so, you know, uh, we, we'd, we'd write sketches. There was a deadline. It was so fun because I would just get, along, get together with a group of friends because this was the law school's comedy troupe, so, you know, it was all law students. And so, you know, we'd get, me and my friends would get together, you know, have some, you know, a couple of uh, of beers and write some really funny sketches and then, then like act them out or in some cases have other people act them out. We had like access to a lot of people who could be our actors and actresses in our sketches. It was really fun. It was, a, it was just a great escape from the craziness of law school and ended up with one of my sketches being on uh, Above the Law. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a big competition every year above the law. Host. Oh, was it like a, is it video? Like if you win, what does that mean? What did you submit? Yeah. How's that work? I mean, honestly, I don't think there's any monetary reward. I think it's more like just for fun. And but did you submit like a video of you guys doing it or what would, yeah, what did they do? Yeah, we, we would record our sketch. Yeah. We, we didn't do live sketches. We mainly did recorded sketches and we would have like a, an our, the auditorium to like play our, you know, our, our sketches, like kind of like. You know, if you were watching SNL from home, that kind of thing, you know? So, yeah, it was just, it, it was really fun. And my best, one of my really close friends in law school also ended up on Above the Law. And it was funny because they had they had to choose between our sketches because they didn't want to give Wash U two of the spots. And so they chose his. And uh, one of the guys, David Latt, I think, he's like, yeah, 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 of course. He like, he like specifically was like, I just want to, you know, make it clear that this other sketch definitely should have been those pick from Wash U. And I was, that was my one little claim to fame. I was like, I really appreciate you, Mr. Lett. Are there vestiges of this still on the internet? Is it possible to, I'm like, can you send me a link to this? Uh, <laughs> yeah, there, there's, I think there's a YouTube. Uh, this is okay. A, you can send it to me. I'm sorry, listeners. People are going to try to Google. I don't know. Good <laughs> luck. Good luck to you. Okay. I'm going to push you forward some more. Yeah. But I have, there's two things we have to talk about before we get off. We got to close the gap of how you get from St. Louis to California. Right. Um, I have my guesses as to how that was. And then we have to talk about, about your practice. So I'm going to guess that through, you know, WashU's on-campus interview, you know, you identify where you want to go, you figured out employment's what you're interested in. And is that how you made it to California or am I totally wrong? Yeah, so it's actually a little more complicated than that, and I'll try to make it quick. I think you've actually told me the story before. But I have, on. yeah. <laughs> so I, the firm that I summered with, when I graduated law school, I chose to clerk instead of going straight to that firm. I clerked for a year in D.C., mainly because I'd always been interested in it, in it and 
family friends were judges and really wanted me to like get that experience and said it would be very valuable. So, you know, I did that for a year and then returned to St. Louis to work at the, the firm and always had an eye towards California. Even when I was applying to law school, I was, you know, cause some of the questions would be asking, would ask like, where do you want to work? Like what, what regions, what markets? And so I'd always put DC and California, like those are the two places. And once I uh, worked at this firm for, you know, put in my time for a few years, I felt comfortable asking them because they had offices all over the, the world, let alone the country, if I could transfer to one of their uh, California offices. And they said yes, luckily they uh, it turned out well. And I transferred to the LA office of the firm. Yes. So you clerk and then you join the, your firm after the clerkship. You're a labor and employment lawyer. How did you learn to be a labor and employment lawyer? So yeah, I mean, it was just kind of I imagine, I have to imagine, it's how you learn to, to practice law in other in other areas as well. It's just kind of a matter of throwing yourself in there and, and you know, learning along the way. And also surrounding yourself with good mentors. That's super important. When I was an extremely brand new baby attorney, I always made a point to, like, build relationships with the people who are senior associates or even any, you know, two years, you know, ahead of me, just so I can kind of pick their brains and ask them questions, bounce ideas off of them and learn along the way. It really helped, I think. And that's, I would stress that to anyone, regardless of practice, it's just important to have a good network of, of mentors in your career. Absolutely. And now I'm going to have you restate what you started the podcast with is, and what are your areas of focus within labor and employment? You're a generalist. You seem to me like a general labor and employment lawyer, but I could be wrong. So just say more about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, so when I was practicing in Missouri and in Illinois as well, because we most St. Louis attorneys also practice in Illinois, my uh, practice was really diverse. I did a lot of different things, touched on pretty much everything. Since I moved to California, my practice has kind of become a lot of wage an hour. I would say about half of various types. So class actions, collective actions, and PAGA lawsuits. And PAGA is, is it Private Attorneys Generals Act, something like that? Okay. Yeah. It's a bane of our existence. <laughs> no big deal. It's uh, terrorizing uh, companies all over California. But uh, yeah, it's a California specific. That's the other thing. So I had Chris Ward on, who also has a lot of California expertise, even though he's now based in the firm's Chicago office. He's a partner. Yeah. And I took the moment, but I'll say it again, because not everybody listens to all the shows. California has a lot of very specific, and this is the defense side, so we are biased, I would say onerous, yeah. <laughs> but highly um, you know, protecting employees. And so for me, you know, I was briefly a dedicated labor and employment lawyer. What I knew was when California came up was to go find a California employment lawyer. Yeah. I knew that I shouldn't be dabbling in California employment law because I would get it wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, you know, California attorneys are also trying to figure it out as we go. <laughs> it literally changes every year. I mean, there's Gavin Newsom, the governor is always signing new laws and everything's fluid. So, you know, it. what's important, I guess, being a California attorney is having resources. So if someone asks a question, I know where to go to get that answer, whereas that person will have no idea where to start. So, yeah, no, I, I think... I think California is very unique. So I, my practice definitely has become a lot more in uh, wage an hour than it was before. But I also do a lot of disability discrimination cases. It's very common here. To a certain extent, whistleblower stuff. I used to do a lot of whistleblower at my former firm in, in the St. Louis office in specific. But yeah, I think that's kind of 
Okay, and I want to close out this thing about your practice area. I want to say a little bit more about wage and hour because for those who don't know, particularly as the law students are listening, so wage and hour claims can look like like anything. And then uh, Caleb mentioned the collective or the class action aspect of that. So just so people have a sense of what that that means, it means there's some there's an employer and something has happened with how they're paying their employees, and often you know, intrepid plaintiff's lawyer, you know, will have identified that this, or they believe that this did not correspond with the law in some way and can bring a case claiming, you know, thousands and thousands of people may have been affected, say from anything from like the, whatever you have on your W-2 doesn't correspond with the law to the way you're tipping employees. And I just will use this as a moment to say, like I said, my time as a dedicated labor employment lawyer was brief, but I spent... 10 days straight in a well-known chain restaurant interviewing uh, waiter, waiters and waitresses. List interviews. To, yes, to, to collecting declarations to see if they had violated the way, you know, hourly pay versus tip and what's tipped work and what's not. Oh, it is a restaurant I cannot willingly eat in anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I spent so much time there. Um, and it was just like 10 days in a row straight that I didn't leave. I didn't see the sun. But anyway, yeah. sorry. I just had to share that. That's a yeah, Stayed with me. <laughs> that is a that's a very. I mean, I don't know if that's a s- similar scenario for people in other practice groups, but I've literally been in that same situation. And uh, you know, in the back of the company, uh, back of a store, in the cargo room with like, you know, just no windows, very poorly lit, just interviewing people back to back about very granular things like. You know, when do you take your lunch breaks and how, where, where do you go in your lunch breaks? And- how, how long would you say that takes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's very technical uh, area of law. It's very much a game of numbers. And in California, there, there are California specific laws that are very uh, much targeted at wage statements that can be really easy to find violations because a lot of employers aren't aware of these very specific detailed laws that are requirements and wage statements. So that causes a lot of lawsuits in uh, California specifically. Well, and I'm going to ask two of my final questions, but I have to put a pin in your career path, which is I'm certain that your skills gained from being a therapist and counselor are useful as you are dealing with all of these people, interpersonal things, you know, counseling clients. So I expect you to be like, yes, they do. (laughs) And then I will ask you my my final two questions. Yes, they do. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they definitely do. It's uh, something that comes up quite often. You know, how I, it's communication skills. You know, I think that's a big part of it. When you talk to a client, knowing how to communicate them and communicate to them in a way that, uh, that gets your point across without sounding like it's all doom and gloom, but also understanding their concerns and you know, just and also alleviating their stresses because there are a lot of them are in these situations where they're staring down the barrel of a you know two million dollar settlement and. You know, you're kind of you're having to play that therapist role in a way to help them understand, you know, what it is that they should be expecting to, to pay in these in these cases and what, it, you know, it's it's what is fluff and, you know, just kind of walking through, you know, the experience of being sued, which is uh, in and of itself pretty psychologically damaging. No, absolutely. It's, it's traumatizing experience. Yeah. Well, then the one thing I didn't get you to talk much about yet is so you are lateral to Foley. And, you know, how has your experience been at Foley over the last couple of years. I don't know if there's anything, you know, worth highlighting about, I don't know, and this is like anything you want to brag about with Foley and Lardner. It's like, so I can get a nice <laughs> clip from you, Caleb. No, I'm just kidding. But but yeah, what what has that been like laterally to Foley? 
It's been great. I love it. I love it here. I mean, this firm is, is, is a firm that I've known about since I was in law school because it's very well known in the Midwest. And you know, I went to law school in St. Louis. And so I always heard great things about Foley. And when I got the opportunity to apply as a lateral, I jumped on it and it was a no brainer. And since I've been here, it's everything's been confirmed. Uh, the people are, are just very down to earth, understanding and really, really smart, experienced attorneys. So, you know, get, to get that combination in your colleagues is so rare in uh, this world. So I really value that. Well, and you're in such a great kind of close knit group, at least from what I've gleaned about the l and group at the firm. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, it's like a family. And I, I really, I mean, these are people who I who I can go to if I have you know a question about the law or if I just have a personal question. I feel comfortable talking to you know my partners and and uh, and senior counsel in in my group. It's it's a great group. So. Oh, well, that is so great to hear. And my my final real question for you, because the last one is just if people can reach out to you, is there anything else that you'd like to highlight that we haven't touched on, or just general advice you would give? to somebody contemplating a legal career or, or navigating a legal career? Yeah, I, and this kind of, I kind of touched on this before, but I, I would probably just want to stress the importance of having people in your corner, having champions, um, especially for those of us who are uh, people of color and minorities in this profession, because there's not a whole lot of us. And so it's important to have that support system and that network so whether it's joining a minority bar association or some kind of uh, organization for, you know, people in your practice group who are minorities, um, like I, I know for me, I have a, a really couple of really great ones that I'm a member of. And I just have met so many great people who have become uh, very serious mentors and people who I look up to in my career. And, you know, it's just you never know when you're going to need support and help and how you can give it back. It's really all about kind of learning because you know we're all learning none of us knows everything and so it's important to be surrounded by people who can give you information and teach you things that you're not aware of and then you can then in turn do that for people who come after you and so i really respect that process and i try to contribute to it as much as i can oh thank you so much and speaking of that if a listener has a you know question and wants to reach out to you can they feel free to find you on foley's website and send you an email absolutely absolutely all right thank you so much caleb you're welcome take care Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley & Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice 